the universe has the network topology of a brain. It, it, it does suggest, again, by a completely different line of argumentation and evidence, that nature is mental and physicality is just a representation, an outer appearance of mentation. Welcome to our psychology and non-duality conference. Um, so I'm here with the, the speaker for our first talk, Dr. Bernardo Castrop. Before I introduce Bernardo, I'm just going to go through some of the housekeeping for today. So we're going to have three sessions and each is going to last approximately one hour. There'll be 15 minutes for Q&A at the end of each talk. So if you have any questions, please add them to the Q&A tab on Zoom. And please also note that we've got a limited amount of time available for the Q&A. So please keep your questions as concise as possible. And we're going to prioritize questions that have been given the most thought. Our second talk is going to run from 2.30 to 3.30. And the final session will be from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. UK time. The itinerary can also be found in the link in the chat bar, which my colleague Lally is just going to share with you there now. Um, so without further ado, let's get started with our first talk. Dr. Bernardo Castrop is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He has two PhDs, one in philosophy and another in computer engineering. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for CERN and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. His ideas and philosophy have, have been featured in Scientific American, the Institute of Art and Ideas, the blog of the American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. Bernardo is the author of 10 books, including titles such as Decoding Young's Metaphysics, the idea of the world, and why materialism is baloney. You can learn more about his work by visiting www.bernardocastrop.com. And if you're interested in submitting an article for publication via the Essentia Foundation's network, please go to essentiafoundation.org forward slash submissions. So Bernardo, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us here today. And whenever you're ready, uh, get going. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, what I will basically do today, I, I, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I think you will find that out rather quickly. Uh, I come from an analytic background, from hardcore analytic philosophy and computer science. Um, so my message is based on reasoning and laboratory evidence. And hopefully that will line up and dovetail well with uh, what you will hear today from people who are probably a lot more spiritually aware and, and, and clever than, than I am. Uh, I'll share my screen with you because I'll be, uh, I'll be using slides. So I hope you can, you can all see uh, my first slide. The topic is uh, to answer the question, is reality made of consciousness as opposed to abstract quantitative matter, as opposed to mass, charge, momentum, spin? Is it made of thought-like stuff? idea-like stuff uh, and that's the question uh, that i want to to address now um to think of reality in a different way uh, whether you believe it or not but even to give the the hypothesis a serious chance um, we have to change a certain perspective uh, we have to regard the world uh, through a, or from a slightly different perspective in order to give the hypothesis a fair hearing and these changes of perspective have happened many times uh, in the history of science and in the history of philosophy 
one of the most fundamental changes of perspective happened uh, in the 19th century when this man here to the left, James Maxwell, uh, understood that um, electromagnetism was better accounted for with the notion of fields as opposed to the notion of particles, little material beads bouncing around. Instead of that, we had to think of electromagnetic effects as the work of invisible fields that permeate space-time and that do not have defined uh, physical boundaries, so to say, or defined spatial boundaries. That's a better way to put it. And of course, uh, once that change in perspective was done, then, then it opened up many, many doors in science later on. By the, the first half of the 20th century, this guy here to the right, Richard Feynman, understood that uh, the best way to extend uh, what was then new theory, quantum theory, uh, in a way that allowed us to, for instance, make sense of how particles interact with one another, so-called particles, the best way to do that was to understand the particles themselves as field phenomena, as to, uh, to understand particles as ripples in a river. Um, there are no particles in the sense that there are no ripples except for the river. There is only the river, and the ripples are behaviors of the river. They are not things in themselves. In the same way, and that's what this animation tries to, to illustrate, it is the, the invisible quantum field that underlies all nature and the entire universe. There are several quantum fields, by the way. It is that invisible field when it behaves, when it ripples, that gives rise to what we call particles. And particle interactions are just the interference patterns between ripples uh, going through one another. And that's all there is to it. The whole of nature is field-like, not... Uh, uh, body-like, not particle-like. Um, and this view has been actually mainstream amongst people who understand physics since the 1940s. And quantum field theory is the most successful theory in the history of science. So can we hitch a ride on this perspective, on this field-like understanding of nature as opposed to the particle, atom-like understanding of nature in order to make the best inferences we can about what nature is, as opposed to how it behaves. Is nature material? Is nature spiritual? Whatever that means. Is nature thought-like? Is nature idea-like? Um, let's begin now that journey of changing our perspective and trying to give a fair hearing to another way of regarding uh, the world. Um, we have to start by understanding uh, that physics may not necessarily be about a non-mental material world out there. What physics actually studies is what we will see next. Even if what we will see next is the output of an instrument, a click from a photodetector, even then the predictions of physical theory are about what we will see next. And that's the understanding that physicists like uh, Marcus Miller from the Austrian, Austrian Academy of Sciences uh, are trying to get across. All we have is perception. We infer that there is a world isomorphic to perception, a world that has the same contours, forms, and shapes of perception, beyond perception itself, but we are cooped up in our own minds. All we have is perception, and, and perception is a mental. That said, of course, there is a world out there uh, that is 
not part of our own minds. And that's the reason why if you were sitting next to me, you would describe my study in a way consistent with my own description of it. We inhabit a common world, but that world is not necessarily physical because physicality refers to the contents of perception, to the shapes and forms and dynamics of what we see on the screen of perception. Even if what we see is the output of instrumentation, like telescopes and microscopes and, and, and oscilloscopes and what you have. Um, the idea that the world out there is non-mental, it's clearly beyond our personal minds. So let's acknowledge that. The world out there is not in my mind alone, obviously. Um, but it may still be mental and not in my mind, in the same sense that the thoughts of another person are mental, but they are not in your mind. You cannot uh, change the thoughts of another person simply by exercising your will or, your, or by imagining that they are different. They are autonomous and objective from your perspective, but they are still mental. The thoughts of another person are mental. So the idea is, could there be a world, could, could the world that is clearly out there also be mental, although not in our own minds, just like the thoughts of another person are mental and are not in your mind. We have to start from the world we see. And we have to ask ourselves, suppose you're in an airplane and you look through the window and you see a storm outside and a vast sky with lightning and, and the sun setting and whatnot. Is the world that is truly out there exactly the same as the world as we see it is what we see what we get is the world uh, uh, let's put it another way is perception a transparent window that allows us to see the world as it actually is that's the question and we have plenty of reasons to say no it cannot be now you don't need to look at the equations here uh, i marked a lot of stuff i used this slide with a technical audience before but uh, you can just follow my words and and just know that there are technical papers out there that make this point very clearly and ver very compellingly um, we cannot possibly see the world as it truly is because there is no a priori upper bound to the variety of states of the world they can be as varied as we can imagine or even more varied than that uh, the technical word for that is the entropy of the world. There is no upper bound to the entropy of the world. So if we would see the world as it actually is, it would require that our inner cognitive states would mirror the states of the world. And then therefore, there would be no upper bound to the diversity of our own inner cognitive states because there is no, no upper bound to the diversity of the states of the world, which we are, ex hypothesis, mirroring. Now, if there were no upper bounds to our inner cognitive states, uh, we wouldn't be able to maintain our structural and dynamical integrity. Uh, to put it colorfully, we would dissolve into hot soup because there would be no upper bound to our internal entropy. Now, we have never seen somebody dissolving into hot soup just from looking at the world. And that means that we do not see the world as it actually is. We cannot. We wouldn't be able to survive. What we see is an encoded representation of the world that conveys accurate information about the world, but isn't the world. And that's how we can survive. Another completely different but converging uh, argument is evolution. 
um, it wouldn't be evolutionarily advantageous for us to see the world as it is in the same sense that it it's not advantageous for us to see the files in our computer for what they actually are. Each file on your computer is a set of millions of open and closed microscopic electronic switches. If that's what you would see every time you, you, you looked at a file on your computer, you wouldn't be able to do anything with it. You wouldn't even know what it is. You would be overwhelmed with information that you cannot act upon. That's why computers, operating systems, they make a representation of the file, a little colorful rectangle on your desktop. And that's what you see. That's what you work with. Not the files it actually is, because that's not useful. It's not functional. So uh, evolution would have done the same thing as your computer desktop does. It would give us icons, representations of what's there uh, in the world out there. But the icons don't look at all like what is really out there. They just convey important information about what, what is out there, but not with the same forms, with the same shapes, with the same degree of entropy. Because we would be driven swiftly to extinction if we actually saw the world for what it actually is. And this is a mathematical point that can be proven and has been proven. So, uh, no, we don't see the world as it is. We don't have a transparent windshield to see the world as it is. What we have is a dashboard of dials. And those dials convey accurate and important information about the world, but they aren't the world. And they don't look like the world either. An airplane pilot can fly without, without looking through the window just by looking at the instrument. So the instruments are reliable and important, but they aren't the world. Now, perception is like the dashboard. So what we call colloquially the physical world, the world of things we can touch, smell, uh, feel the texture of, feel the temperature of, uh, taste, uh, see, hear. That's the dashboard. Everything you see, hear, and smell, uh, these are the dials of your dashboard that has been evolved by natural selection. Um, and they convey important information about the world that help you maintain your inner entropy bounded so you don't melt into hot soup and helps you be able to act on that information without being overwhelmed by it, like the little rectangles on your computer desktop that don't overwhelm you like the file, the true version of the file would with the millions of open and closed microscopic switches. So the physical world, what we call colloquially the physical world is but a dashboard. And what is behind the dashboard, the thing that is measured for the measurements to then be presented in the dials of the dashboard, that's the world as it actually is. That's the real world. And the question we want to ask is, what is that real world? If physicality is the dashboard, then that world is by definition not physical because it's that which stands behind the dashboard. What is it then? So just to reinforce it, we don't have a transparent windscreen. We only have the dashboard. And instrumentation doesn't change this dashboard paradigm because even if you have a telescope, you still have to perceive the output of the uh, telescope you still have to perceive the output of instrumentation. So all of that gets filtered through the dials of the dashboard. And at the end of the day, all you have is still the dials of the dashboard. You've never had a peek uh, through a transparent window to see the world as it actually is. And we are now at a point where we can say this is as near to a established fact as we can get. 
Now, physics, it turns out, is pointing in the same direction. There has been a flurry of very important papers over the last 40 years, particularly over the last 20, um, that show that physical entities do not have standalone existence. And by the way, these series of experiments have received the, the Nobel Prize uh, in physics this year. The three uh, laureates uh, were the people who have developed and, and evolved and improved these experiments and carried them out for the past 40 years. And the experiments go as such, as follows. Suppose you produce two so-called particles. They're ripples, they're not particles, but uh, I'll keep calling them particles to surrender to the linguistic convention. Let's suppose two particles were created together, like two photons, particles of light. And one photon A is shot to the left and photon B is shot to the right, both at the speed of light. And after a certain distance, a little while later, uh, uh, photon A arrives at Alice's measurement instrument, like a camera. And photon B, after the same interval of time, uh, arrives at uh, another measurement instrument that the scientist Bob is wielding. Now, it turns out that what Alice chooses to measure about photon A determines what Bob sees about photon B. What photon A and B are physically, their physical properties which define what they are, depends on a measurement choice. In other words, before we make a measurement, we cannot say that there are these physical entities called photons A and B. We experiments do not do not allow us to say that. It makes no sense to say that photons A and B were there before measurement. Of course, there was something there before measurement. There was the thing that was measured. You measured something. You don't measure nothing. Um, but what you measured was not a photon, was not a physical entity. The photon is the outcome of measurement. Physicality is what arises from an act of observation. And this shouldn't come as a surprise because, you know, if the physical world are dials on a dashboard, if the airplane's sensors don't make a measurement of the real sky behind the dashboard, then the dials show nothing. Is that surprising? If you don't measure, the dashboard shows nothing. Of course it doesn't. Now, it does, that doesn't mean that there is no world out there. It only means that the world out there is not the dashboard. The Now, port that to physical, physicality. If you don't measure, there is nothing physical. That doesn't mean that there is nothing you do measure. There is something out there that you do measure, but that something is not physical. So if you don't measure it, you don't get physicality because physicality is the dashboard. Duh, it's not surprising, is it? The fact that um, the measurements performed by Alice and Bob are completely correlated, despite Alice and Bob not communicating with one another, shouldn't be a surprise either. Imagine that there is a football match or a soccer match, if you're American, a soccer match in a stadium, and you are a fan of soccer, but you can't go to the stadium. So what you do is you buy two television sets, two enormous television sets, and you watch the same match from the comfort of your living room through two different broadcasters. So you tune in to the first broadcaster on the first television set, television set A, and you tune in to another broadcaster in television set B. Uh, and suppose also that the broadcasters have different cameras at the stadium. Uh, 
So the images on the two TV sets will be different, but they will be completely correlated because they are both images of the same uh, soccer match. Now imagine that somebody from the 19th century time travels to your living room to watch to watch the match with you. And our 19th century time traveler will notice that the images in the two television sets are completely correlated. If the little man on the box to the left run that way, then the little man in the inside the box to the right run that other way, always in sync with one another. It's as if the little man on either box, on both boxes, knew where the little man on the other box were going to go. And then they, they, their behavior is completely correlated. But there is no communication between the two boxes. Whoa, that's a miracle. Our time traveler thinks this is discombobulating. How can this possibly be? How can they know where the other little man in the other box are going to go? How does the ball know where the ball in the other box is going to go? Now, you see the mistake our time traveler makes is to take the images on the TVs for the thing in itself, for the actual soccer match, for the real world out there. That's why the whole thing looks discombobulating. But we know that what the television sets show are just images, representations, the output of measurements on a dashboard, the TV being the dashboard. Uh, the little men are not inside the TVs. They are not the real little man. The real men are in the soccer, soccer stadium far away. So for us, the correlation between the two images is not discombobulating, we understand it. Now, when we become discombobulated by the new experiments in physics, the ones that got the Nobel Prize this year, we are making the same mistake as our 19th century time traveler. We are like 19th century people regarding 21st century experimental evidence. That's our mistake. Because we think the physical world is the thing in itself. It is the soccer match. But no, the physical world is the image on a television set. And that's why those images sometimes are correlated, even though the TV sets are not communicating, because they are not the actual world. They are images on the television. Two planes flying in the same patch of sky have two different dashboards. Now, the measurements on both dashboards will correlate with one another not because the two dashboards are talking to one another, but because they are measuring the same patch of sky outside. So why should we be discombobulated when two dashboards show correlated measurements, even though they are not communicating with one another? We only become discombobulated if we think that the dashboards are the world, as opposed to being just a representation of the world. In conclusion, the world isn't physical unless you adopt some woo-woo physical fantasy like multiple parallel universes popping out every fraction of a second for which we have no shadow of empirical evidence uh, or the imagined but undetermined fantastic hidden variables of superdeterminism for which we also don't have a shred of evidence. If you abandon this gratuitous, unparsimonious physical fantasies, then you, you have to face the conclusion that the physical world is the outcome of measurement or observation, while the real world behind it, the thing that is observed, the thing that is measured, it's not physical. So what is it? And that's a, a diagram to show you my, my point of view. Um, the inner circle in dark gray are our inner cognitive states, is what we feel from within, our own personal mind. 
Now, there is a light gray blanket around it with sensory states. In other words, the states of our retina, of our eardrums, the states through which we interface with the real world out there, which is represented by the white circle. Um, and our blanket, which technically is called the Markov blanket, also has active states. Like when we move to interfere with the world, you do that if you pick up a broom and you swipe the floor, you are picking up the broom and swiping the floor. Those are active states. Now, my point is that uh, the physical world is the Markov blanket and it's not the external state. And that's the world we live in. It's the white circle. Those are the real states of the world out there. The world that doesn't care whether we are here or not. That is what, we, what it is, regardless of what, whether we measure it or not. The physical world, on the other hand, are our personal Markov blankets. They are our personal representation of what's out there, our individual dashboards. And each one of us has a dashboard, just like each plane in the same patch of sky has its own dashboard. And because we are all measuring the same external states represented here by the Greek letter phi, our dashboards show mutually consistent measurement results, which, which is what happens when we say, well, indeed, we live in a world where there are cars and trees and buildings. Yes, our dashboards are consistent with one another because each of our dashboards uh, is measuring the same world out there. But the physical world is the dashboard. It is the Markov blanket. Each one of us, of us has a physical world surrounding us like a blanket. Uh, <clears throat> and that physical world is what happens when we measure the world outside, when we measure the real world. But the real world, phi, is not physical because it's not the blanket. It's what is beyond the blanket. Now, the, the Greek letters, and it helps physicists get the picture. Um, don't get frightened by the technicalities here. Now, some people might say, well, wait a moment, Bernardo, if you are saying that uh, our mental states, because our perceptions are mental states, the color we see is a mental state, the smell we feel is a mental state, the flavor is a mental state. What I'm saying is that those mental states are thus sort of primary because the physical world is just our own Markov blanket. It's our own dashboard. And our, and our dashboard is mental. So our, our mental states are then primary. Doesn't that contradict neuroscience? Because don't we know that our mental states uh, uh, um, are derived somehow from brain activity, which is physical? Well, no, we don't know that at all. Nobody in the history of science, uh, let alone neuroscience, has ever managed to explain explicitly and coherently how physical quantities like mass, charge, momentum, frequency, amplitude, and so on, give rise to qualities, like what it is like to, to see red, what it is like to have a bellyache, to fall in love, to be disappointed, to regret, uh, to smell coffee. Nobody has ever made that link, not, not even a step in the direction of making that link. As a matter of fact, we have plenty of laboratory reasons recently uh, to conclude that this is actually not the case. Until 10 years ago, everybody took it for granted in neuroscience that psychedelics, for instance, worked by uh, lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree, by increasing brain activity, because that would be the way to explain the psychedelic experience, which is unfathomably rich, intense, 
to explain that in terms of brain activity. If you have such rich and intense experiences, then you have to have very intense brain activity because experience is the result of brain activity, right? Well, it turns out that psychedelics do not increase brain activity at all. They only reduce brain activity and they reduce brain activity significantly. You see what you see here in blue are the areas of the brain um, that have significantly less activity compared to placebo, compared to our normal baseline. And despite your brain effectively going to sleep, well, not even going to sleep because your brain is pretty active when you are asleep. Um, how do I even describe this? Um, activity in your brain reduces while you're having the most intense, baffling, uh, rich, uh, um, discombobulating experience of your life. And it's not just one paper. This is another one. Uh, in, in this study here, LSD was, uh, was used. In the previous slide, I showed uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms uh, were the psychedelic used. Here you have LSD. And here they, they broke the results down into different frequency bands of brain activity. You can look here at the bottom of the picture, the power spectrum, they call it spectra. I think, well, okay, spectra, there are two spectrums here. Um, and you see that uh, under the psychedelics, uh, uh, brain activity, uh, the power spectrum of brain activity uh, reduces across the entire band, across all frequencies. Uh, and this was measured with MEG, and the previous one was measured with fMRI. So we are talking about different psychedelics, different measurement apparatuses, and the same results. And there are many, many papers now that have been produced over the last 10 years, and they all show the same thing. And this is a case where, although brain activity and experience are correlated most of the times, there is no denying that, this is a case where one black swan refutes the theory that all swans are white. So even though most swans are white, in other words, most of the times brain activity goes hand in hand with uh, experience, the intensity and richness of experience, sometimes it goes the other way and that's your black swan. And that's what defeats the theory that all experiences are generated by brain activity. Clearly that's not the case. And then you have to ask, is then any experience generated by brain activity? Could experience have two completely different causes? Uh, that's very unlikely too. Now, of course, neuroscience, which is largely materialist, uh, they went out and tried to measure something in the brain that, re that increases when uh, you are having a psychedelic experience. There must be something. If it's not activity, then something else must increase when you have a psychedelic experience. And they did find something that increases, and that's brain noise, which they call randomness or entropy or uh, big names, diversity, they call it. Uh, but it's just noise. It's TV static in your brain. So when you have a psychedelic, your brain activity decreases a lot. But the residual brain activity that still stays there has a little bit more TV static in it. Now, how much more? Well, brain static increases by 0.005 in a scale from 0 to 100. In other words, to say that it's a microscopic increase is, is the understatement of the, of the century. Uh, it's hardly detectable. And to say that the power, the richness, the intensity of a psychedelic trance can be explained by this 
percent increase in TV static in the brain is just preposterous. It's probably the most one of the most preposterous ideas ever taken seriously in neuroscience, which reveals our psychological prejudices now when it comes to understanding what the world is. Moreover, many of the subjects studied, uh, their brain static uh, decreased while they were having the psychedelic drones. Uh, what you see here in this slide is a statistical result. For many people, brain static decreased, and they still had the psychedelic experience. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention this. And it's not only psychedelics. Many other things that impair or reduce uh, ordinary brain activity have been shown to correlate with enriched uh, intenser experience. This is a study done in Italy 12 years ago, published in Neuron, uh, in which patients um, that had tumors in their brains were studied before and after surgery for the removal of the tumors. And surgery always has some collateral damage in surrounding tissue. And it turns out that uh, uh, an index called self-transcendence, which, which is a, the subjective experience of um, how rich you are as an entity, whether you transcend just your body, whether you are also part of the world. This, this is known as oceanic uh, consciousness in psychology. Uh, the more of that you have, the richer and intenser is your experience of life. And it turns out that uh, uh, there is a marked increase in uh, this index of self-transcendence before and after surgery. And for the control groups, for you know, the placebos eff effectively, there is no change uh, in that index. So apparently brain damage leads to intenser, broader, richer experience. Um, and not only damage from surgery, even war trauma. There's a group of Vietnam War veterans, over 100 of them that were used, um, that were studied, uh, and it turns out that uh, lesions on specific parts of the brain increase the likelihood of transcendent religious experiences, which are very powerful, very intense, very rich. And they correlate with uh, impaired brain activity, with lesions uh, in the brain. Um, even the study of uh, so-called mediums in Brazil, this is 2013, people who claim that they can write down information from transcendent sources. I reserve judgment about, uh, about that, uh, but I cannot uh, ignore the actual result of the experiment in which researchers put uh, these mediums in a brain scanner uh, and they measured their brain activity while they were writing down this information allegedly from some transcendent source. Uh, and it turned out that uh, uh, their brain activity, which you see here in red, before and after, well, before trans and after trans for different parts of the brain, uh, decreases while they were uh, in trans. Decreased precisely in the areas of the brain responsible for language processing and rationality, the areas of the brain you would expect to be hyperactive if you're engaged in an, in an intellectual activity, like uh, writing down something, writing, writing a paper, writing a book. And for the controls, that brain activity predictably increases a lot when they are writing down something. And then you might ask, well, maybe what the so-called mediums wrote down was much simpler, therefore they didn't have to engage their brain that much. But researchers are not so silly, they are not so naive, so they used objective means to score the complexity of the text written. There are computer systems now that can score text for complexity, 
not only in, in, in syntax and grammar, but also semantic complexity. And it turns out that what the mediums wrote down while their brain activity decreased was significantly more complex than what the controls uh, 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 wrote down while not entranced. So I could go on and on and talking talk about a number of other things that uh, um, uh, reduce brain activity and are correlated with richer experience. For instance, the this choking game that teenagers play worldwide in which they, they partly strangle themselves to cut blood flow to the brain, which reduces brain activity, of course. Um, but they do that because it gives them a high. They trip. They have like a psychedelic trip. Very rich, very intense. They go to alien worlds and <laughs> all kinds of things. Um, and that happens because they cut blood flow to their brain. So I could go on and on and talk all day about these things. <clears throat> but the message is there is a whole flock of black swans that refutes the notion that brain activity generates experience. And therefore, we have to maybe start making peace with the possibility that the world out there, as it actually is, isn't physical. That physicality is just an appearance of that world that our brain activity is just an appearance of our inner experience, not their cause. And that's why brain activity ordinarily correlates with inner experience, because it's the image of inner experience. It's what inner experience looks like from the outside. It's a representation on a dashboard of experience outside and behind the dashboard. That's what, that's what the brain is. It's a dashboard representation of your inner experience, of my inner experience. <clears throat> um, so in conclusion, and just to recapitulate, uh, we cannot perceive the world as it actually is. Perception is a dashboard. We get encoded information, representational information about the world as it actually is. <clears throat> and therefore, Physicality is just that representation. It's just an appearance of a deeper layer of reality that we can interface with, with only through physicality, only through the dashboard and not directly. <clears throat> and because physicality is the dashboard, then whatever is behind the dashboard is by definition not physical. To use the same word for the dashboard and the sky outside, it's, it's artificial, right? It's cumbersome at the very least, if not just stupid. Uh, so let's not do that. Uh, the world is not physical. We can arrive at this conclusion from very independent lines of evidence. From foundations of physics, we know that physical entities do not have standalone existence. They only come into being upon a measurement. The thing that you measure in the first place isn't physical. And from the neuroscience of consciousness, there are many situations in which brain activity does not correlate with the richness and intensity of experience, which is the flock of black swans that uh, refutes the notion that that experience is generated by brain activity. So if you want to do physics in a level-headed way without the metaphysical prejudice that the world as it is in itself is also physical, we have to remain agnostic and say the world as it actually is uh, we cannot become acquainted with it directly, at least not in principle. I'm sure there will be spiritual teachers speaking after me that will try to help you become directly acquainted with the actual world through introspection as opposed to through perception. And I do take that seriously. I have never managed to achieve that myself because I'm just not an enlightened being. But I do not dismiss the claim because I think the claim is coherent and it's not even implausible 
So if we want to understand uh, uh, what the world really is, we need this shifting perspective. And we need to understand that mind is not necessarily what is in here. It may also be what is out there. It may still be mental out there, although not in your personal mind, just like the thoughts of another person are out there from your perspective, but not in your personal mind. And the whole world, the whole universe, the entirety of existence may be mental stuff, mental dynamics, and we are just a little segment of it, a psychological complex of it, to put it that way. Hey, Bernardo. So thank you very much for a fascinating uh, presentation there. I really enjoyed that. Um, to get started, Bernardo, I just like to ask you, how does the structure of the brain correlate with the structure of galaxies in the universe? And what are the implications of, yes. of this from your point of view? So you're alluding to recent research, um, which is not based only on comparisons of pictures, because you can make any two things look alike in a picture if you crop it just the right way and you process the colors and the contrast in just the right way. No, the research was done based on the reliable and rather objective tools of information theory and network topologies. And what turns out to be the case is that the network topology of the universe at its largest scales um, is surprisingly similar to the network topology of uh, mammal, uh, mammal brains, biological brains. Now, we do not have anything in science today that allows us to account for this. It's it from that perspective, it's a very surprising result. Uh, but from a philosophical perspective, um, it's not really surprising, is it? Because if physicality is what mentation looks like from the outside, and and and, and that is the reason why a brain is what it is, because it's what my inner mentation looks like from the outside. My mentation looks like the network topology that we call a brain when it's looked at from the outside, when it's probed and measured from the outside. If that's what my mentation looks like, it looks like a brain, then it stands to reason to imagine that if the whole universe is made of mentation as well, it's mental too, then it too should look like something like a brain. Now, you have to be careful. The universe doesn't look really like a brain in the sense that it's not made of carbon atoms and metabolizing neurons. And, you know, it, 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 it's not uh, the brain. But the network topology is very similar to the brain. And what this seems to suggest is that uh, the similarity arises because the universe as a whole is also mental, just like my private mentation. Uh, but the mentation of the universe is not exactly like my mentation as a monkey running around a rock hurtling around the sun. Of course it isn't. Why should it be? <laughs> uh, why should I anthropomorphize the universe so much? But it, it is very suggestive, perhaps more than suggestive, that the universe has the network topology of a brain. It, it, it does suggest, again, by a completely different line of argumentation and evidence, that nature is mental. And physicality is just a representation, an outer appearance of mentation. In the talk, you covered a lot around things like, you know, psychedelics and how this actually reduces brain activity. And that leads to actually an enrichment of experience. And there's other examples of that as well, where pilot, pilots go into centrifuges or <laughs> uh, the choking game that teenagers play, where you've reduced mental activity and you've got an, an expanded consciousness or an expanded awareness you reduce so, brain activity brain activity um so <laughs> the question i want to ask them what are, what are your thoughts on death 
if this is the case, you know, if brain activity being reduced enhances uh, consciousness to, to some level, um, what do you think about, about what happens after death? I think what we call life biology is what a dissociative process in a field of subjectivity underlying all nature looks like. In other words, a living, breathing, metabolizing body is what dissociated mentation looks like. That's what life is. Life is the appearance of dissociated mentation in the mind of nature. So what is death, the end of life? Well, it's the end of dissociation, right? If life is what dissociation looks like, the end of life is the end of dissociation. It's a reabsorption of our seemingly private mental activity into the broader mind of nature, into mind at large. And um, even the dashboard suggests that. What happens to a person when the person dies? Well, first, there is an immediate change in what we call the body. It stops metabolizing. The outer appearance may still look like the same thing, but it's completely different from the inside instantly because metabolism stops instantly. And metabolism is the key characteristic of life. And that ends the moment you die. Um, and then the body decomposes and becomes reabsorbed into the earth and becomes recycled into nature. So even the dashboard is suggesting that, that uh, death is the reabsorption of our mental activity into the mind of nature. In other words, it's like waking up from a dream because when we dream, we've, we become internally dissociated. We think we are the little avatar in the dream and not the rest of the dream, not the trees and cars and buildings around the avatar. When we wake up, that inner, that inner dissociation ends and we, we realized that uh, we were not only the avatar, we were the thing doing the entire dream. So your avatar, your dream avatar is dead when you wake up. He's toast. He's done with when you wake up. But nobody goes around crying and mourning the death of their dream avatar when they wake up in the morning. I suspect real death is the same. Um, the dream avatar is gone because the avatar is what a dissociative process looks like. Death is the end of that dissociation. So Bernardo Castrup is gone because Bernardo Castrup is a dissociative process. But the I behind my eyes, the subject behind my thoughts, behind my delusions, behind my fantasies, that subject goes nowhere. Where is it going to go? Uh, that subject sort of wakes up from dissociation. And I don't think it will go around mourning the death of Bernardo Castro. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've talked there quite a bit about dissociation. And for anybody that is maybe wanting to understand this a bit better, you, you often use a, a very helpful me metaphor about this this woman in a study, I think it was in 2015, German scientists use EEG. Could you tell us about that and how this can help us understand this dissociative process a bit better? So dissociation happens when one mind seemingly fragments itself into multiple distinct centers of awareness. Each center has its own memories, its own personality dispositions, uh, values, and so on. It used to be called, an extreme form of dissociation used to be called multiple personality disorder. But now with the DSM-5, we call it, uh, well, for several years now, we've been calling it um, dissociative identity disorder or DID, which is the correct name now. Now we have known DID clinically for about 200 years. Uh, records go back that far. 
but there was always the hypothesis that um, people are dissimulating it, that people are pretending to be dissociated to that degree in order to get attention or whatever. However, for the past 20 years, since the advent of neuroimaging, we know objectively now that uh, DID actually happens and it's, it's not people pretending. There was a study done in the Netherlands in 2014 in which uh, brain scans were done of uh, people suffering from DID and actors pretending to themselves to be dissociated. And it turns out there is a marked difference between the two brain scans. There is something dissociation looks like in a brain scan. And it can be diagnosed objectively that way. And the most uh, remarkable study is the one you refer to, a woman in Germany who had multiple dissociated centers of awareness. They are technically called alters. And some of the woman's alters claimed to be blind, while the woman could see perfectly. The host personality could see perfectly. So um, the psychiatrists uh, had this brilliant idea of putting an, an EEG cap to measure her brain activity, uh, both when a blind alter was in control, in executive control, and when a non-blind alter uh, took over executive control. And lo and behold, the brain activity in the visual cortex at the back of the brain disappeared when a blind alter was in control, even though the woman's eyes were open. So that's not something you can fake. That's not something you can pretend. Um, dissociation can literally make you blind to what is right in front of your open eyes. And of course, when a sighted personality, a sighted alter would come back in control, brain activity, normal brain activity would return to the to the visual cortex. So dissociation is powerful to the point of literally making you blind to what is right in front of your open, well-working eyes. So is it surprising that it makes me blind to your thoughts, that it makes me blind to what's happening in China? Of course it's not. And I think that's what's happening. That's why living beings seem to have private mental inner life. Even though they are part of the broader mind of nature, they are blind to whatever is beyond their dissociative boundary, just as that woman's altar was blind to what was in front of the woman's open eyes. That's, uh, that's mind-blowing. Um, okay, so we've got a question here from uh, Timo Peters. What are the best arguments you've found against your position of philosophical idealism? And why, what are your counter arguments there? And why are they wrong? Um, I think the most the strongest argument uh, would be the notion, and, and by the way, I think it's, a, it's based on a false assumption. I would discuss that. But on face value, the strongest, strongest argument is the notion that we are compound beings. We are made of trillions of cells. Our brain is made of countless billions of neurons. So it looks like we are made of parts. We are compound beings. And if so, and our consciousness correlates with this compound body, then our consciousness should be compound as well. In other words, our consciousness should arise out of the combination of little mental states of neurons or perhaps even molecules and subatomic particles like panpsychists uh, put forward. And in that case, uh, the structure of the world would be the structure of the physical world, right? Because uh, uh, we are assuming that at the bottom level of reality, the world is compound and we are compound beings made of little parts and thus, and thus so should consciousness be. Uh, and therefore, idealism is incorrect because idealism, which is what I just put forward, 
uh, 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 infers that there is one unified field of subjectivity underlying all nature, and that uh, um, parts and, and, and divisions are an artifact of the representation, are an artifact of the dashboard, of the screen of perception. Just like your computer screen is made of pixels, if I look closely at your image, well, I'm using a retina monitor, but if I were using a normal monitor and I looked close at your picture on my monitor, I would think that you are made of little rectangular blocks. But of course, that's an artifact of your representation on my monitor. You are not made of rectangular blocks. So I think that's one of the errors of this notion that we are compound beings and therefore consciousness should be compound, should be made of parts. It mistakes the structure of the screen of perception for the structure of that which is perceived. It's like thinking that you are made of rectangles just because that's what your appearance on my monitor is made of. It's to think that you are pixelated just because your image on my monitor is pixelated. Um, another error is is the very assumption that we are compound beings. We are not. We would be compound beings if the following thing happened. If trillions of little cells would crawl, crawl towards one another and pile up of one another, on one another until forming us, if this were how we were born, by little cells walking towards one another and piling up until they formed our body, then we would be compound beings. But that's not how it happens. What happens is that in the beginning, we are a unified zygote, a fertilized egg in our mother's womb. And what happens then is that that egg internally differentiates itself through a process we call mitosis or cell division. Our cells didn't walk towards one another, didn't crawl towards one another to form us. They are the result of the inner differentiation of one unitary uh, entity, which is the zygote, the fertilized egg. I submit to you that we are still that zygote today. Zygote simply grew and differentiated into itself internally, just like our ideas, our mental life differentiates itself internally. We have more thoughts, more perspectives, more fantasies than we had when we were infants. Our mental inner life has differentiated and complexified itself while remaining unitary. I submit to you that exactly the same happens in the case of the body. We are still the zygote. We are still that unitary zygote we were when we were when the egg in our mother's womb was fertilized and when we came into existence. That zygote simply grew, matured, and differentiated itself internally. And we mistake cells for parts. Well, in fact, cells are just what the inner differentiation looks like. There are no cells, there are no parts, we are still the zygote, and there are no subparts to our conscious inner life. It's still unitary, it's one dissociative process. To what extent do we live in a, a purposeful universe? We had a talk from um, someone I think you've spoken with in the past, Ian McGilchrist, um, and he made a very strong argument that values and purpose are almost embedded in the structure of being itself. So I want to ask your thoughts on that. And if, if life exists for any reason at all, what might that reason be? I personally, although I would like to believe it, I personally don't go as far as to think that the particular values of a particular culture at a particular moment in history are somehow embedded in the fabric of nature, like Platonic archetypes, like 
to be good and to be beautiful is embedded in the fabric nature as a platonic archetype. I, I personally cannot go that far. I don't think the evidence justifies going that far, even though I would like to, but I can't. Um, I don't think there is a deliberate thought through plan of nature for nature. I don't think the evolution of history on this planet or the cosmological evolution of the universe over the eons is the result of a crafted, deliberate thought through plan by some kind of conscious deity. I don't think that's what's going on. I'm a naturalist. I think nature does what it does because it is what it is. It acts spontaneously because of the dispositions that constitute its being. To be is to have dispositions. To be is to have properties. So nature does what it does because it is what it is and not something else. And that's all there is to it. It is remarkable how nature on this planet, at least, how much it seems to invest in the production of a species that is capable of metacognitive thought. In other words, a species that can not only experience, but that knows that it is experiencing a species with self-awareness. Uh, with self-reflection, metacognitive experience, um, because we are a tremendous risk to nature on this planet. We can end it all tomorrow. We can set nature back millions of years tomorrow by pressing a red button. Um, and we are solely responsible for one of the greatest extinction events ever seen on this planet. We are doing this. It's the Anthropoc Anthropocene, the time of man. Um, that is causing this massive extinction. And despite all that, nature and evolution seem to be pushing towards this, this self-awareness, this self-reflection, this capacity to think explicitly about the self, to be self-aware. Um, so I would suggest to you that, yes, there is a telos in nature. There is a direction of, evo of evolution. There is a purpose but it's not an explicit, deliberate purpose. It's an instinctual purpose. It's mm -hmm. the purpose of a cat that follows his nose to find the food. The cat doesn't go, well, I feel hunger, hungry now. That means I'm low on calories. Therefore, I have to find food because if I don't find food, I may not be able to survive. So I have to find food. And the sense of smell tells me the direction of food. And therefore, I will proceed in that direction in order that I get food. No, no, that's not what's happening in a cat's mind. What's happening is spontaneous. It's instinctive. It's a spontaneous reaction to the smell of food and the need to be fed that naturally and spontaneously makes the cat move in the direction of food. I think it's in exactly this sense that nature is moving the direction of self-reflection spontaneously by reaction, by instinct not by deliberate planning. And do you think then that this sort of non-dual form of consciousness that people like your colleague Rupert Spira are teaching, this increases an individual's sensitivity to these things and enables that spontaneity to flow through them more? Do you think it's a good route to getting there? And the second part of that question is, a lot of the work you do is so that you're creating um, a very strong logical argument for this point of view um for someone that is sort of hyper intellectual and really can't you know struggles to to um embrace these ideas what are you what are what's your advice for a good starting point for them to sort of 
like a really good resource for them to start really engaging? Uh, maybe it's the Essentia Foundation website or where's the first place you would recommend them to go? So starting from the, the second question first, I think people who are intellectual and cannot part with their intellect, um, they cannot believe without couching that in a, in a coherent conceptual narrative. Um, people like me, in other words, what they have to do is to be consequent. If you decide to follow your intellect, then follow your intellect all the way without prejudice. Don't follow in your intellect until halfway and then take a turn based purely on pre prejudice or unexamined assumptions, because that's just stupid. <laughs> it needs to be just stupid to do that. So if you really want to be intellectual and intellectual, and you are a materialist because you think the intellect points in that direction, then pursue your intellect more consequently. And you will see that it will move you away from materialism very quickly because materialism is just internally inconsistent, incoherent, empirically untenable. It's just a shit show. Now, how do you do that? Well, you, you can go to the Essentia Foundation website, essentiafoundation.org. Uh, it's a foundation which I lead and it's dedicated to putting forward a intellectual, empirical, rational argument for idealism, including no introspection, no spirituality, not because we are against it, not at all, uh, but others are already doing that part, the spiritual, the introspective part. So we focus on what we are good at, which is to put forward a rational empirical argument for the mental nature of reality. Now, regarding your first question, the value of non-dualism um, to discern the true direction in which nature is pushing, uh, I think it has that value. Uh, it has that value because it reduces the noise. Uh, we are contaminated by recipes that come from the culture about what life is all about. And a very popular recipe today is life is about becoming rich and famous and powerful. Richness, fame, and power. And, and that's ridiculous. Nature doesn't give a damn about any of this. These are human constructs that only have value within a particular human narrative uh, that has nothing really natural going for it. Um, so uh, uh, I think non-dualism by weaning you out of that addiction, that culture-bound addiction, which is nonsensical, it helps you focus on other things. And amongst these other things, there may be the true purpose, the true, the true telos of nature. Okay, well, we'll have to end on that note. Um, before you go, Bernardo, uh, you have, people can submit articles to the Essentia Foundation's website for, for review. Is that right? Can you tell us a bit more about that? And if somebody listening to this would like to do that, how would they go about doing that? So I, I don't want to make a blanket invitation for everyone to send us their writings because they will be disappointed and they will just be overwhelmed with work. Uh, we accept submissions of scholarly uh, uh, written work. And when I say scholarly, I mean, it doesn't need to be a text for a specialized academic journal, but it should be academic level. Um, we publish academic level stuff written for the general public. So if you are an academic, a scientist, a philosopher, uh, or, or at least you have the background to be able to write uh, uh, in an educated manner about the subject you're writing on, for instance, you're a practicing psychologist or psychiatrist, a clinician or a physicist, 
um, then we welcome submissions of uh, academic level texts uh, targeted at an educated audience. Okay, awesome, awesome, right? Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Take care.